Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Hey, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Fanalytics podcast. Uh, my name is Mike Lewis. I'm a professor at Emory University, and I am joined by Doug Battle. Doug, we live in interesting times, and you know, I, I know, you know, look, the Fanalytics podcast is about sports analytics. It's about understanding fandom. And so I know, you know, basically you want to talk about UGA. You want to talk about how the New York Giants have gotten into the win column. You want to talk about sort of the, the pure aspects of fandom. And, and I think that every once in a while, and, and most of the time we do that. Well, I don't know, half the time. But sometimes, you know, when I'm talking to you and I bring up things like that, Jake or Logan Paul is the most important story in the world of fandom. You know, you're, you're, you're a trooper and you go along with me. So this one, and I do honestly think they are the big fan story of the COVID era. But this last week, I think we have another contender. And that is Britney Spears. Oh, yeah. And the specifically the Free Britney movement. Because... If you think about what just happened, social media, Britney's fans have basically, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, but they, their pressure that they have put out there has basically caused the legal system to change directions in how Britney Spears is treated. And I believe Britney is now free. So it is this, it's this issue of, in a way, it comes back to this issue that we talk a lot about here. And I think if this episode has a title, it's the star empowerment issue. Is uh -huh. the power of social media is everything right now. Absolutely. Um, the Britney Spears thing is, it's been a story for months. This is someone whose ex, Justin Timberlake, who wrote the song Cry Me a River as a bitter, spiteful breakup song years back was recently posting on social media sending his thoughts and prayers her way and, and trying to rally around her and, and join in on the movement um, to free Britney there's going to be documentaries and I mean this this is going to be a story forevermore in, in America pop culture but seeing the power of 
fans on social media to bring Crazy about fans. Do you see, you see <laughs> yeah. some of the fans that were talking to in the street? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I've seen fans posting conspiracy theories about all of this for years and it's very interesting and it's, but there's people that have followed this, like it's a TV show or like it's like, I remember I was a big fan of Sherlock and every episode there was like Reddit and stuff where all the fans would come together and put together what they thought everything meant and what they thought this might mean. And everything was like that fandom was very, um, they thought everything was a conspiracy and the Britney Spears fans have been like that for as long as I can remember, uh, in regards to this conservatorship. I don't even know how to pronounce that word. I didn't know it was a thing before Britney Spears, um, before the story. And so I think it's almost like, if you had a star, like if you took any star in, in the pop world and created this real life narrative around them, like I feel like there's some marketing team that's looking at the real life Britney Spears thing and saying, oh, what if we did this to get people attached and to get people to create a sense of like togetherness around this star? Wait, wait. Are you advocating a conspiracy <laughs> theory that the Free Britney movement is just an effort to no no to I, pop her to have her career explode yet again? No, I mean her career's already exploded. She doesn't need it. But I'm just saying, it's like I, I feel like somebody's seeing this and being like, "Wow, this is creating a lot of buzz." What if we just like fabricated this for the next person? I, I'm not saying that has happened yet. I'm not saying that was the case with Britney. I'm simply saying this is showing the power of fandom and it's showing that having in our, especially in our culture that almost glamorizes being a victim that, that having a star be a victim in need help from the masses, from her fans is, is a successful, I don't know. I mean, it's been an, a successful endeavor on, on behalf of the fans and everyone feels like, They've done their part and they've, they're always doing their research and reading into it. And they'll show you a video and say, Hey, you got to see this. Hey, like you won't believe this. This is actually what's going on and tweeting about it and posting on Instagram and getting the word out. And, uh, apparently that's actually, um, uh, brought change for the actual real life of a human person that is a celebrity. Yeah. I, I think you're in, I think we're actually in agreement on this one that this is, really a salient story in the world of fandom it's because it is it, it does truly show the absolute power now i wasn't thinking along some of the lines of sort of your <laughs> proposed conspiracy theory yeah. but yeah you have to think there's a netflix deal or a hulu deal or oh, something yeah. coming down the pike on this of you know some show of you know tracking you know being Brittany or or whatever it whatever it is, mm, yeah. the you know following the free Britney movement and her and her fans, it's it's too much of a natural. And there's probably you know if you think about some of the deals other people have gotten, hundreds you know hundred million dollar deal perhaps, um, something really significant in terms of value. I looked up a couple of numbers. So Britney Spears has thirty five million followers, and I think this illustrates why. You know, the power of celebrity and the power of fandom and how important it really is. Mm -hmm. So she has 35 million followers. The Today Show has about 3 million viewers a week. Yeah. The NBA 2021 finals averaged 9.9 .9 million 
viewers. If you go on TikTok, Brittany has a bunch of videos where she's doing some dancing and I believe her kitchen or her living room right. where she's got 35 or 40 million views. These things are not comparable, right? No. The, the, the no. numbers and the reach are fundamentally different. And if well, you think is, about how- This is why influencer marketing has risen so much and not that any influencer has that big of an audience, but there are just normal people my age that can reach a larger audience, more impressions for an advertiser than an NBA finals game. Yeah. On their social media. And you think about how a lot of media works now where it's all about clicks. It's right. all about counts. And it makes complete sense that the balance of power has, has shifted. And yeah, I, I think when you look at some of the big accounts, the Ronaldo's, the D'Amelio's, the Britney Spears, Le, 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 LeBron, LeBron James, yep. they really do dwarf the traditional media outlets. And with that comes tremendous, tremendous power and tremendous clout. No doubt. And it's, it's changed so much about every part of the entertainment industry and in sports we've seen, particularly in the NBA, you talk about LeBron James, where LeBron has significantly more followers, if I remember correctly, than the Los Angeles Lakers. It's, it's become more of a player-driven league than a team-driven league. I think in um, music, for example, it used to be bands. It used to be the Beatles, and it used to be ACDC, and it used to be these collective groups that would perform and, and people would want to go follow them. And we saw like even, you know, I mentioned Justin Timberlake earlier, uh, go back to NSYNC where it was a boy band and the interest became so fixated on, on a single person. And nowadays, financially, it's more viable to just capitalize on one person and to really build their brand and to really build the audience for them. And that one person can have more of an audience as an individual than they would as part of a collective. And so it's part of our individualistic society, but I think social media is a huge part of it. And we talk about it in sports all the time. We talk about the NFL being a quarterback-driven league. We talk about the MLB struggling to create those stars. Uh, but, but Britney Spears is a perfect example of how you can almost create a cult of personality around any of these celebrity-type figures that breeds significant fandom, significant interest and in following from large masses of people in the way that following a team in sports or a group in music simply wouldn't. Okay, so Doug, let's uh let's let's move to the league that probably has the greatest level of player control or player empowerment. And that is of course the NBA. Right. I wonder if you know where I'm going to go with this, because to me, Kyrie Irving is becoming a really interesting mm -hmm. player. Yep. Um, in the lead up to the, the 20, I assume we're, are, are we back on the regular NBA schedule? <laughs> yeah. Regular is a interesting term yeah. at this point in time. I don't know if anything's regular. Uh, the NBA schedule, I do believe they're beginning the time they would have began two or three years ago, pre-pandemic schedule. Yes. But, but like, I, I have always kind of loved Kyrie on some level. And <laughs> as a player, found him kind of intriguing and frustrating. Right. You know, it, it seems like, you know, there's always a little bit of, and again, sort of the magic of sports beyond analytics. 
Kyrie's got a, an it factor that very yeah. often is a positive and very often is a negative yeah. when he goes to different teams. Um, I remember a few years ago when Kyrie had to, I think he ended up apologizing for advocating for the flat earth theory. And, I don't, did he apologize for that? Like actually, I, I think he's, he, he sort of backtracked on it, okay. but I, you know, I, I, I love any athlete that will get out there and put out, it will advocate for the flat earth theory. Flat earth, we didn't land on the moon, all yeah, that stuff. It's, that, that stuff is a lot of fun to me. And <laughs> yeah. it's a lot of fun when, when stars and celebrities do that because, you know, it's sort of a, an observer of the culture, an observer of the media landscape. I love watching the media deal with that. Now, this week, and in the lead up to this season, you know where this is going. Kyrie seems to be the biggest name of the players, and, and it appears the NBA's got about 90% vaccination rate. Kyrie is the biggest name player that is holding out on that and fighting with the NBA. Um, <laughs> I, I actually am a little bit surprised. I thought there was going to be more resistance with it. Resistance. I thought there was going to be more resistance within the NBA and also with the NFL. Yep. But it's going to be interesting to see how the NBA closes. And I think where they're able to pressure a lot of athletes, I don't think they can pressure Kyrie. Well, the problem with Kyrie is that he's on their side with a lot of things. I mean, he, he's kind of the face of the woke NBA. And so to have that player, it'd be one thing if it were this conservative hero. Jonathan Isaac uh, for the Magic. He, he's kind of known in that way. He didn't kneel for... The national anthem when all the other players on his team did um, amidst the Black Lives Matter movement, and he's been outspoken in his decision to um, presently. I, I think he's open about it that that he's presently decided not to become vaccinated at least at this point. And he's one where it's like uh, his fans, his uh, the, the support and the people that he's associated with. I think. Well, Doug, can I inter- NBA can I interject a- there because I. Isaac is the other really interesting in the athlete in all this because Isaac, I think, actually got a lot of positive yep. press. Yeah, he did. In terms of how well he argued the position of, and if I, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think his position was basically, well, I've had COVID. Right. Um, and then given the risks, risk factors associated with someone in my age and physical condition, I don't think the vaccination makes sense. So it's, he in some ways is definitely kind of a winner in all this in terms of, I mean, like, I don't know that there are any, maybe I, I, I take that back. I don't think there are any winners in this debate, mm-hmm. but he has gotten a lot of positive press for being incredibly well-spoken. Yeah. Well, he's, he's uh, a minister. I don't know if you knew this, but he preaches at a church and I think that's something he wants to do beyond his basketball career. He's a, he's a, one of the most interesting figures in the NBA to me coming at it objectively, not looking at it from a political standpoint or with a political bias, but simply recognizing that this is a guy that has views that contradict the mainstream in the NBA, that contradict kind of what the message the NBA puts out, the message a lot of the players embrace. And he's been, he became a hero in a lot of people's eyes. I think he actually, his personal brand benefited from that. Um, we saw that when he didn't kneel for the national anthem and his jersey became one of the best-selling jerseys in basketball that week because uh, there were enough people that believed what he believed in that said, I'm going to wear that guy's jersey. I want to represent what he's representing, 
even though it's countercultural to what, what else is going on in the NBA. And so you look at a guy like him, and on the flip side, a guy like Kyrie, and now they're, they're taking the same stance together, um, seemingly on opposite political ends of the spectrum. It, it's a very interesting league because the NBA, they have a very, very outspoken league um, in their stances on things. And yet when you have star players who disagree with that, puts them in an interesting situation, particularly a brand like Kyrie, who not only is one of the biggest individual player brands in the league, but is a, a player who I think the, the NBA is championed as, as a champion of women and a champion of players' rights and a champion of African-Americans. Uh, Kyrie Irving has been the model citizen in the eyes of, of NBA uh, executives, it seems. And now he's, he's the one bucking against their desires. Well, he has, I mean... I'll just push back just a little bit on that. I don't know that okay. the NBA was in favor of the flat Earth. Oh, that that's advocacy. That that is that one is out there, and I, I yes, that was not part of my argument. But yes, but, but Kyrie very good is point. definitely generally consistent with the progress. The NBA is the most progressive. the, pro, the progressive aspect that, of it, right? That's that. It's almost part of you know. It's what they believe, and it's also part of their marketing message. Those mm-hmm. those are almost indistinguishable to yep. me. Yep. Um, but I, I, again, I, I find Kyrie a fascinating person just because I think, you know, if, if I was going to do a little psychological analysis of Kyrie and guys take this for what it's worth, but I would guess that Kyrie scores very high on the trade of, well, on the trade of disagreeableness. And so <laughs> it's, and that, that sounds much worse than it is. There's a, a part of the big five personality test. There's something called the agreeability index mm-hmm. and all disagreeable this really means is that he questions things right and so it's someone that is consistent generally consistent with the nba's values and their marketing who tends to when he hears something and again this is my speculation when he hears something he tends to play devil's advocate to absolutely say, what about this or in the case of the flat earth look i don't personally i don't personally have knowledge i've never been to space and so there's a little bit of a little bit of doubt, perhaps. Now, Kyrie is also interesting in that. Well, Doug, let me ask you this: Who is the favorite going into the season? Is it the Nets? I would say the Nets. Yeah. Okay. So if Kyrie, at this point, it's, I think it's a little bit unclear, but there's still some speculation that in New York you cannot go into a a lot of places, restaurants, bars gyms that he would not be able to play and he would lose something like 15 million dollars in salary but would not be able to play on any of the nets home games so could this fundamentally change the nba season yes absolutely and i'm going to come at you with an alternate conspiracy theory that just struck me because we're talking about Kyrie, and he's such a conspiracy theory guy here's a conspiracy theory about Kyrie. this guy doesn't like playing basketball and he finds every way possible to not take the court and take the fine. It seems like every year he sits out some amount of games because of some ridiculous fine for some rules he broke with COVID or with now the vaccine and, and who knows what it was before that. He misses a significant amount with injury. He also misses games 
for what's been speculated as injury prevention uh, to rest his body. He's missed games for funerals. He's missed games for uh, because he feels like there's an injustice in the world and he's going to protest it by not playing. This guy, I've never seen an NBA player find so many ways to miss playing basketball games. What if, what if that's all it is? You know, in true Kyrie fashion, I'm asking. This is how he would ask. This is how he would question Kyrie Irving. If he I, were I don't, I don't think a grown man should wear another man's name or jersey. Yeah. But if I had to buy an NBA player's jersey right now, it would be Kyrie Irving's. <laughs> so he's, he's becoming the, the most the, interesting man in the league. Yeah, the most interesting man in the league. And from a brand building standpoint, I've got to wonder, like, would Kyrie be more valuable if he were just a normal guy that played really great basketball, went out, competed, hit the game-winning shot in the finals one year, saved LeBron's butt, um, plays really good ball for the Nets, is one of the best ball handlers of all time, arguably the best. Or if he's all of that, but he disagrees with the mainstream on everything, he's constantly playing devil's advocate. Does that make him more valuable? It's one of those things where you start to wonder, is all press good press? Is it that that Donald Trump approach of you know if we do something and it it gets covered and it's gonna it's gonna be an, a positive at the end of the day even if it's all negative coverage? That's a good question. I, I have to think that it almost there's an interaction between Kyrie's marketability and his basketball career. And I'm not going to make any judgments in terms of who was right or who was wrong in terms of what happened in Cleveland or what happened in Boston. But if Kyrie had, let's say, Jordan level of championships, then I have a feeling his approach to life or his disagreeableness would be an enormous marketing asset. Almost mm-hmm. like a, a like Conor McGregor won a lot of fights, and his marketing appeal did not suffer at all when he threw a, what was it, like a bike rack through a bus window. So I, I think as long as you are winning and dominating – then you just get more interesting. Yeah. If there are questions about is Kyrie a winner, can you win with Kyrie, then it probably hurts you a little bit. But, you know, yeah. Just, but I'll, just I'll sort say of a this. quick judgment. Like, I think Ky- like Kyrie's got the signature shoe line with Nike, which, by the way, how long before that falls through over the whole vaccine thing? It, it would not shock me at all um, if, if there was some endorsement issue in regards to people's stances on the vaccine. But, Kyrie's got that marketability where he's got the signature shoe line. Did Tim Duncan? I, I don't remember him in ads or his. I mean, he won what five or six, five championships, uh, MVPs several times, Finals MVP several times. I think he had a shoe, a shoe with Adidas at one point. Um, but you don't think of those two in the same spectrum. One of them just went about his job and was great at it. And everyone seemed to forget about him. He was kind of like the boring basketball player. Um, Kyrie Irving is uh, almost a household name just in spite of his basketball. Like if he weren't even a basketball player, we'd still be talking about him. And again, my memory, my memory's a little bit fuzzy. Didn't Kyrie also have a movie? Yes. Uncle Drew. Uh, Uncle Drew. Uncle he used Drew. to do the, the old man makeup and hair and stuff and, and go out and play basketball and commercials for some brand, um, and, and ended up becoming a feature film somehow. And how was that movie? 
I did not see it. I'm sure it has terrible ratings. Uh, but I'm sure I, I can almost, you know, I'm going to look but, that up while we continue talking. But but a feature film says something, right? So it's well. Also, how many basketball movies get? I mean, how many sports movies are well received? I mean, so Space Jam Two with LeBron and the biggest budget you've ever seen for a silly sports well, movie was Doug, very poorly received. Doug, I think that's a. I think that's a future fanalytics episode because I think baseball movies often get great reviews. Football movies often get great reviews. Basketball movies are always panned by the critics. <laughs> they never work. I don't know what it is. I can't. I'm trying to think, Coach Carter. Uh, I'm trying to think of ones over the years that that might have like been considered successful. Um, but yeah, especially these ones featuring NBA players. There was the Kevin Durant flop of a movie lebron's flopped jordan's as everyone likes to talk about like it's a classic is a critics it was a flop to critics i mean it was not well received by critics um i think it simply was it kind of became a meme it kind of became a a cult classic in a way um i'm looking yeah uncle drew has a 60 on rotten tomatoes that's not bad i mean it's a d in for a basketball movie it's a d in (laughs) school shaquille o'neal's in it nick kroll is in it interesting okay well that's that's the name i wanted to talk about next nick kroll shaquille (laughs) o'neal because last week should last week shaquille o'neal renounced his celebrity did you see this i missed this oh he, he he took to twitter and said basically celebrities are crazy and he didn't want to be one anymore and sort of went on the path of just because I have more a bigger platform, I'm not better than you. Just because I have more money, I'm not smarter than you. It was um it was an interesting thing. And I do I, I do firmly believe that Shaquille O'Neal is not smarter than me. Okay. I, but you know what? I, I love Shaquille O'Neal. You know, he 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 seems to walk around Atlanta. I think he's had stories where he, he's paid for an engagement ring for a guy. I mean he seems like a genuinely <laughs> Yes. Nice human being. He's like he was like a volunteer cop at one point in Florida, I think. <laughs> yeah, he had a it, rap it, career. It, yeah, it, they were trying to sell his house down in Florida. It was all they had to de-shackify the house <laughs> before they could sell it. That's amazing. Um, well, when you're talking about <laughs> movies, the one that I don't think you, and, and my memory could be fuzzy on this one. I think Shaq in the '90s had a DC Comics superhero movie called. <laughs> Uh, what was it called? Steel, perhaps, where he had some sort of uh, a, a hammer. So Shaq has, Shaq has an extensive acting career now. Steel, you're right. 1997. Obviously, they were making a mistake by trying to put Shaq into a superhero <laughs> uh, franchise because Shaq's genius is clearly advertising. Do you agree? Uh, Icy Hot. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else, but yeah, he's he's all time. He's great. My favorite's the car commercials where he gets in and acts like it's all spacious and his knees are at his chest because he's he's simply too <laughs> large for a consumer well, car. Here, here's, I mean, just a, a quick list of some of what he's done. Um, the General, I see. insurance uh, uh, well, I got to interrupt. Steel has a 12% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> I just had to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, it didn't. It, I, I didn't see it. it some I, point now before. I want to see it. That's got to be spectacularly bad. Well, Doug, I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna make let you make a choice. We're either gonna do an episode which is gonna be the acting career of Shaquille O'Neal, or we're gonna do one which is comparing 
basketball movies to baseball movies? Uh, you know, I think both might be good. I think there's okay. we have the bandwidth for both of these because eventually, <laughs> eventually, Mike, Mike's starting to backpedal now. <laughs> well, no, I mean eventually because there's always another Monday taping. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so Shaq's done Epson printers, Carnival cruises, icy hot as you mentioned, and here's the. Uh, uh, I'm looking at the picture of Shaq sitting in a Buick with his sort of shoulders folded in and kind of head bowed a little bit forward, trying to make it look like a seven-foot-tall, 300-pound man can fit into a Buick SUV. Uh, Pepsi, back in the day when he was a relatively young player. What about Shaq's work with Papa John's? What about Are you familiar with some of those? I mean, I get them all mixed up at this point. <laughs> That, well, it's shakaroni for one. Yeah. <laughs> Just many of those pizzas have come to my house. But I, th- I guess <laughs> I'm thinking of the one where he comes into the Papa, the Papa John's, and he's wearing sort of a gray beard. Okay. And he's there, it's almost like an undercover boss thing, and just the luna, the lunacy of this giant walking in, pretending that he's not Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> yeah. Shaq, hard to do it justice. Shaq is, he's funny because on the floor, he's, I mean, if you go back and watch his highlights, prime of his career, that guy is one of the scariest athletes you've ever seen. An absolute freak, an absolute monster build. And he was terrifying. I think that it's strange to me that he's branded himself as this goofy guy. I think it is truly who he is off the court. And if you watch even Kobe Bryant documentaries, you will see that Shaq was always kind of taking things lightly and it rubbed Kobe the wrong way. But Shaq rapping, acting in Steel and Shazam, I pulled up uh, 5% on Rotten Tomatoes. So he's had this elaborate acting career of absolute duds of movies, which is just amazing to me. But I think like a kid today that watches NBA and, and sees Shaq on TNT every Thursday night um probably thinks he's a joke like probably like people don't realize this guy was a monster he was people thought he was maybe the goat at one point they thought he could be that guy and i think a lot of people that watched him would say he might have been if not for the free throw thing you take free throws out of basketball Shaq might have been the most dominant basketball player of all time at one point um He's branded himself. He's branded himself. He's he's done everything. It seems like there's been no um, filtering out certain things to shape yourself as this cool guy or to shape yourself as this monster, this timid. Like anything that comes his way, he's just like, sure, I'll do it. And you know, as long as it pays money, he does it, and he's goofy and it's hilarious. And uh, by now, I think people have forgotten and and kind of he's not in the goat conversation. I feel like maybe he should be. He's not even in the goat conversation for being a center. Right. And, and it is, yeah. you're, you're, you're dead on right because there were rumors back in the day that his second choice for a college program was the Fighting Illini before he went down to Ouch. LSU. And Shaq was a physical specimen. You know, th- th- there's some of these guys that are just, they're physically beyond the competition. Mm-hmm. And Shaq was one of those guys. Now, maybe but he was Shaq that guy in have, the NBA too, which is yeah. amazing because everyone's. But he, Perhaps he doesn't have the the level of skill, and it was mostly about the physicality. But yeah, Shaq was a 
pure out and out monster in the you know playing in the NCAA and playing in the in the 1990s in the NBA. Um, I I just think that Shaq. I think that branding has has had so much to do with the goat conversation. Jordan has branded himself around this killer mentality. Kobe Bryant branded himself around the Mamba mentality. Even in today's league, I think that like Damian Lillard with Dame time, it's like he's created this whole perception of clutch and of, you know, he's the biggest guy in the biggest moments. He built all of the marketing promotion that he's in kind of reiterates that hammers that in. Kobe was certainly that way. And with Shaq, it's like there was never this. I don't remember seeing a serious Gatorade ad with Shaquille O'Neal winning the game on the buzzer beater or being the intense competitor. He's always been the goofy guy. And I think that the off the court marketing has enhanced people's view of Michael Jordan in retrospect. Mm -hmm. Even someone my age that didn't watch him growing up, I just assume things about him because of what I see in commercials. Um, Same with Kobe Bryant for the next generation. Shaquille O'Neal is, is I think that his perceived basketball performance has probably diminished because of the marketing efforts that he's made and in the films that he's been in. I think it's an interesting theory. Uh, and I think you're probably right that by portraying yourself as a little bit of a, a little bit of a goof, <laughs> then it's hard to think about him having this, this killer instinct and being right. this physical monster. Now, the only, the only thing, reason why I'm not going to agree with you a hundred percent is I suspect that Shaq is happier than any of those other guys you mentioned. A hundred percent. I have he no doubt. Genuinely that. seems to be thrilled with how it's played out. And if people aren't talking about him as the goat or worrying about what he did in Orlando, I don't think he cares. No, I don't either. I don't either. And I love it. I'm happy for the guy. I admire him. Um, I think I, I, Everyone in sports is so self-serious, and it is adults playing a game, and I think that Shaq seems to be the only guy that recognizes that and just takes it for what it is and moves on and doesn't care if you know what he's thought of as or if he trips off of the stage on TNT as he did at one point. And Shaqed in a Fool, I think, is one of my favorite segments on TNT um with with Shaq just making fun of players for their bloopers throughout the season. So, he's embraced his goofy side. He's not self-serious. I think it does resonate with a certain audience. I think it's good for the league and I think it's good for basketball and I think it's great for Shaq. But and 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 look Doug, maybe when you're essentially one of the biggest 10 people on the planet, you know, that's all you can ask for, right? Sort of just <laughs> It, the, the idea of being relatable might be his absolute goal in life. And I think he's got, he's achieved that. Yeah. I like, uh, I got to get back earlier. You said they de-shactified his house before they sold it. I feel like I would maybe pay extra for a shactified house. Like if I could take where I live and make the door, like make myself feel like a tiny person, like make the doorways like 15 feet tall. And I don't know what, what else goes into shactifying a house, but I, <laughs> I would imagine it's quite the process, but I think it'd be kind of cool to buy Shaq's house without de-Shaqtifying it. Okay. But I mean, I, like, maybe I think 20- that would add value to the house. Like 20 years from now, I'd be like, this was Shaquille O'Neal's house. Like this used to belong to a giant, a giant, yes. <laughs> a giant millionaire. Well, Doug, I, I will tell you this. It was not a house that was being sold at it for a couple hundred thousand. 
Okay, so was, uh, you're telling me that um, I need to save up? Yeah, so I, and the, the question is, like, essentially, you would want to have this museum. I don't know where to go with this, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just saying, it would be cool to be like, yeah, uh, this legendary giant used to live here. And that's oh, I think why, you got to you got to keep something, and that's why, right? the, and that's why the doorways are so big. <laughs> hey, look, no one ever regrets getting taller ceilings and taller doorways. No, so I, mean, I think there's something to to that. Yeah. Okay, Doug. The last one, and again related to athlete empowerment, a more serious story and a more kind of one with really serious long term ramifications is on September 29th. I'll, I'll read this. Uh, the top lawyer at the National Labor Relations Board, Jennifer Abruzzo, issued a memo declaring that the institutions of college sports, including the NCAA, are misclassifying players as student athletes. So the, the National Labor Relations Board is basically saying that because of the way they are treated, student athletes are employees of the university. And so we can add this to all the NIL stuff. You know, basically what it comes down to is that these are essentially full-time jobs when you're playing major revenue-producing sports, or actually non-revenue sports as well. They're kind of seven-to-seven jobs with a little bit of classwork thrown in. That the legal basis for amateurism was teetering on the brink with the NIL stuff and Brett Kavanaugh, some of Brett Kavanaugh's statements over the summer. Mm-hmm. But it seems like this is a house of cards that some program is going to start paying the players. They're going to put a stipend out there and it's going to cascade almost the same way that NIL did. Yeah, I think so. Um, First off, I I agree in a sense that calling college athletes student athletes uh, might not be the best term. Having been in classes with many of them or having been on the same list of classes that, that many of them did not ever attend or show up to. Um, I don't know if student athletes is the correct term, but uh, if we're going to call them employees of the school, the school's got to be paying them directly, which my understanding right now is that that's not the case. And so they're really, they're, they're freelance workers for they're independent contractors for crystals and for Bojangles right now that go to school and play sports. Yeah. If anything, the model got even crazier, right? They're now people that volunteer to play sports at a university so they can become attractive marketing right. personalities for college hunks hauling junk, Kane's <laughs> chicken. Which, by the way, whatever can, else can we talk there. about how many, uh, going into the season, we talked about all these big NIL deals. The, I, I just, I really wish I could see the numbers on the ROI. Because a lot of the guys that had the biggest deals have not been successful on the field. Um, Derek King, I haven't heard his name all year. I know game one they had Bama and got smacked. I saw that coming from a million miles away. I kept saying that kid is smart to cash out before they play Bama and before the season gets ended <laughs> prematurely. Um, Miami has not been good. DJU for Clemson has really struggled. Clemson is not ranked for the first time uh, in what feels like 10 years. I have no idea how long it's been, but it's been a while. And this guy is still the face of these Dr. Pepper commercials. Um, Bo Nix with the Bojangles commercials and getting benched against Georgia State last week. Spencer Rattler with 
he's got the Bojangles endorsement. He's got he's got some of the, uh, he's probably one of the highest paid players in all college football. And he's got fans at the games booing him off the field and cheering for them to put the backup in. Uh, there's been very few successful players with huge NIL deals coming into the season. I've got to wonder, like, has this backfired? And, and maybe this is an, a discussion for another day, but I, I mean, just have to throw it out there because um, it, it's been intriguing to me to watch these guys fail on the field after, after these brands really took a chance on them and, and made a, a partnership with them. Well, I'll speculate that year one in NIL was always going to be kind of strange. That a lot of the a lot of the value in these NIL deals was probably in the signing, right? Signing someone in July was a news story, right? right? And so that was that was the kind of the free rather than paid, right? Paid reach on these things. Going forward, I, I suspect NIL is going to be a much smaller thing. Than I do too. People think it's going to be because, like, when you asked me the when you asked the question about NIL, uh, sorry, when, about uh, ROI, the rate of return on investment. Helping the Emory business professor yeah. on this term. Yeah. Talking and talking and thinking is tough, guys. Um, that return on investment in advertising is really a tricky thing to do. It's, it's it's almost impossible without a lot of strong assumptions. So advertising has always been a matter of faith. And so if the players don't work out. Yeah, that that that's gotta hurt. Um, so it, going forward, it's it is gonna be kind of fascinating how all this gets together. But look, the college sports landscape, the economics didn't make a lot of sense before NIL. They probably make less sense with NIL. If the government essentially declares that these folks need to be classified as employees, and the colleges then need to actually start paying them. It's just going to keep evolving in really kind of unpredictable ways. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I suspect that we'll see within five years some form of stipend. Maybe it'll be a consistent stipend at the, at the Power Five conference level and less other places. But that may well be the, the entry point in terms of if you, if you want to build a program, you're going to actually have to go out there and pay talent to build a program. That doesn't sound like the college sports I grew up with. No, it's not, but it, college sports is already, I, I mentioned a few weeks back that Vanderbilt was spending, I don't know if it was $200 million on some football weight room facility, but there's already, you're already paying to be competitive in so many ways. It's just not being paid directly to the players that, that you're bidding on in a sense. But all that to say, this year there was no Trevor Lawrence, there was no Justin Fields, there weren't these established brands really going into the season, these Heisman favorites, as a lot of unknowns. And I think it being the first year of NIL, some of these brands took a chance and um, some of them won. I think whoever signed Bryce Young to deals is probably doing pretty well. Some of them lost. But I think moving forward, if I'm a brand, I, I'd probably want to know that it was a Tim Tebow or a Trevor Lawrence or, or kind of someone that is going to be the face of the league, someone that is going to be a positive association with my brand if I'm paying significant money for their endorsement. Well, I think the market definitely has to move in two directions. One, there, there's going to be a few national guys. Nowhere near as many national guys as people were acting like this year. Right. And then there's going to be a lot of local. A lot of local. Mm -hmm. Right. With like a few, a, one, or, one or two less zeros on the paycheck for the local guy, for the local deals than the national guys. But I think that's got to be the direction this goes. I think so. 
Okay, Doug, last thing, back to regular sports. What do you think about college football this year? You alluded yes, to I it. Yes, I do have thoughts on this. Clemson is out of the top 20 for the first time in eight or nine years, I think. Yep. Uh, 30 plus, can we give me one more fact? 30 plus top 20 teams have lost in the first four or five weeks of the season. We <laughs> have 30? parody. Doug, we got a strange kind of parody in college football. We've got parody in college football outside of the top two two i i wanted to have this discussion going into the episode i was hoping this would come up one and two are almost nfl teams it feels like there's they're so good and there's so much better i you know ole miss and arkansas as much as everyone's thinking they're overrated and maybe they were um what time will tell but Honestly, when I look across the league, it's like, would they beat Oregon? Like, yeah, they'd have a good shot. Would they beat Ohio State? I think they could. Would they beat Oklahoma? I think so. I mean, Tulane almost beat Oklahoma. Just about everyone Oklahoma's played almost beat Oklahoma. They're still undefeated. I think they're gonna. They might just slide into the playoff and and get themselves embarrassed. But um, there's such a drop off in those first top two, and it's for me. You know, I, I'm removing my bias here. I'm a Georgia guy. My team is one of those top two. I don't think it's good for college football. I think that parity has taken a bigger hit with NIL and with, more importantly for this season, the transfer portal. You look at a team like Tennessee, Tennessee's best player last year is now a starting linebacker for Alabama. Okay, West Virginia's best player last year is a starting defensive back for Georgia. Okay. One of Clemson's best players. Clemson's a team that maybe was was elite, and they lost their quarterback, and they lost, and things weren't looking as good. One of their players jumps ship, goes to Georgia, plays on a top two team again. Um, the teams that are slated to be the top teams are the teams that are most likely not only to get the best recruits, but to poach players from their competition in football, and so. What do you do when you're when you're these other teams? How do you compete with that? I don't see how you compete with Alabama if you're anyone but Georgia. It's hard enough if you're Georgia. I know this, uh, having watched them and followed them for so many years. But how do you compete against them when you're Kentucky, or when you're Vanderbilt, or when even even when you're LSU, um, and you've had that magical season a few years ago? It's still to sustain that level let, when you let lose. Let me interrupt it. just for a second. You yeah. cannot. Don't don't let the air out of Kentucky's, you know, tires. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. They they, Kentucky, Kentucky may be Georgia's most serious competition in the SEC East. People are saying that a a surprising statement. I've heard this before. Here's my thing with it, and and again, I think Kentucky is a team. There have been years in my life where Kentucky's beaten Georgia. If you purely look at talent at the the caliber of players on both sides of the ball it's not fair it's not fair for them it's not a fair fight i don't th- i think kentucky's done a tremendous job with what they have and like i said i think with the right circumstances and injuries and just crazy fluke stuff it maybe it could happen um but again how do you compete against a team that gets to go not only handpick the best high schoolers out of the country, but then when there are some of those that don't pan out, get to go and replace the guys that don't pan out with the best players 
from Kentucky, the best players from Tennessee, the best players from, like I said, in, in this instance, Clemson and West Virginia, um, an All-American from West Virginia, an All-ACC player from Clemson, uh, an All-SEC player in Alabama's case from Tennessee. The transfer portal has, has simply destroyed any hope for these teams, in my opinion. I, I cannot imagine pulling for Tennessee and being in this place. They are a sleeping giant. They have been a massive successful program over the years but they're in a bad place they have one linebacker that looks like a you know he's the caliber of player that would even be be dominant at Alabama and get to start at Alabama and he leaves to go play at Alabama it's like well now you don't have anyone like that and and Alabama's got a lot of guys like that already now they have one more it's it's not a fair fight no it's not and this is where we're this is where we're headed yeah right because as Transfer portal opens up opportunities. NIL makes some opportunities more lucrative than the others. Right. The labor relations board essentially going to move towards having institutions compensate players. Well, bigger revenue programs are going to be able to offer more money. So everything is pushing towards these greater competitive imbalances. And the thing that's not being talked about at all is anything like a CBA in the pro leagues in terms of how do you actually legislate competition? And in fact, what's kind of great about college sports, can you even ethically legislate competition? I don't know how right? you do, right? Right. I, you can't transfer, even though you want to go to this school that has this great pre-vet program or accounting program, you can't transfer because we need your institution to be better at football. Yeah. Right. The the basis just isn't there. The logical or the ethical basis just doesn't exist. No, it's not. And and we've been talking in recent years about expanding the college football playoff. And I think from a parity standpoint, I I think there's been an argument over the years that the eighth team in the country, there could be a two loss team who didn't have a quarterback for half the season and was hot as fire at the end of the season and had a legitimate shot at beating the number one (laughs) team. I think that was the case five years ago. I think it may have been the case three years ago. This year, I'm like, I don't even know why we have a 14 playoff. It doesn't even look like there's 14. What it, was Arkansas uh, ranked going into that game, Doug? Weren't they eighth or eight, ninth? Eight. Okay. That's, there you go. That's your 18 playoff right there. Yeah. What was it? 37 to nothing. Yeah. Um, Bama going up against 14, but a, another team that was in that playoff hunt with Ole Miss and, and the same results. The final score made it look a little closer than it was because the third string Alabama defense maybe gave up some points, but look, I don't see how you create parity or maintain any level of parity that's left. I don't see how you don't end up with the top 200 players in the country playing for the top three teams in the country and everybody else being in a completely tier of football, a completely different tier of football. No, it, it seems like it's destined to be that way unless some compromised. And again, I don't know how you, Let's say you allow the players to form a union. That's fine. That gives you someone to negotiate with. But given that there doesn't seem to be any way to limit player, any basis or logic for limiting player freedom to play where they want to play and get educated where they want to get educated, I, I don't see what you do. It, it is a, it, it's a fascinating question. Like, what is the natural state of things? So let's say that there are a couple of top five elite programs in the SEC. It seems like, you know, maybe this is just about a down year, but there's always going to be an Ohio State 
Michigan's trying to get into that conversation. And, you know, Oklahoma and there's Clemson prob- are usually in that th- conversation as well. There's an Oklahoma. Maybe you can have almost like an elite West Coast team that U- somehow has geographical or- appeal. Yeah. Yeah. But but you know what but what you don't seem to be able to have is and this is like the state of Florida. You can't have spread, right? You have to have one dominant team in that in each of those regions for the for this to actually work. Right. Um Okay, and, so Doug, and you talk about okay. maybe a West Coast team having some advantage because of the, their geographical location. If you look at these rosters for Alabama and Georgia this year, a lot of West Coast kids. Georgia's quarterback, California guy. Mm-hmm. Alabama's quarterback, California guy. Georgia's leading receiver slash tight end, California guy. Um, USC used to have this. They were like Texas, when Texas kind of had a monopoly on that state, it felt like, and USC had this monopoly on the state of California, and they had all these guys like that are now going to Alabama and Georgia, or Clemson, or you know, name those Ohio State, those top couple of teams, Oklahoma. Um, ge- geography has much less to do with decision making as to where players go nowadays. It well, seems. That that's fair, but by geography, I'm really talking about sort of market potential. Okay, so I'm talking more about the economics of it. Sure, sure. Right? That you can have a if you got a juggernaut, and, and look, the West Coast has always been, you know, L.A. has historically been a tough football market. Yeah, you know, but you know, and, and so maybe the maybe the program is strangely Oregon, right? But there, there's a few the Oregon's, the USC's, Texas, Ohio State, Clemson, perhaps that have the potential to sort of build those sustainable rev and I'm thinking very much in pro sports terms to have those sustainable revenue base bases, but we'll have to see how it, how it plays out. So Doug, I think we probably need to wrap this one yep, up. Yep. So as we go into the week, anything, anything else that's uh, on your mind? Well, I, I definitely have something that I saw this morning that I I've got a comment. on. Uh, is it urban Meyer? It is Urban Meyer's <laughs> apology. Oh, man. Uh, everyone's taking bets as to when he's going to be done in Jacksonville and when he's going to USC or when he's going to have heart conditions or when there's all these different bets going around with him. But that whole situation is just classic. Um, One of the worst apology, maybe the worst apology I've ever seen. I apo- I'm apologizing ho- for ab- embarrassing people and creating a distraction. He really mostly apologized. Felt totally flat. He mostly he didn't look up the entire time. First off, but mostly apologized not to his family, not to his wife, not to his kids, not to his apparently grandkids who he's with just prior to that, um, but to his team for potentially causing a distraction, a football guy move like that is uh, that is just so typical. I don't know. I, I I don't know what to say. I will say that. That Florida Gators team with Urban Meyer and Tim Tebow and Aaron Hernandez and Riley Cooper. And we need to retroactively go back and make a documentary on that because you had a a womanizing head coach, a murderer tight end, a virgin super Christian quarterback, a racist star wide receiver. I mean, that team, I think, has had like 30 felonies since since they've graduated and they were one of the best teams I've ever seen in college football. Uh truly remarkable. But with Tebow it evens out, right? The goodness his goodness might outweigh all of that, honestly. He is he is 
nearly a flawless human being. Um, I was going to say I'm looking forward to Georgia Auburn, but you know me. <laughs> I'm a Georgia guy. I'm also an anti-Auburn guy. Like That's my second primary fandom, and that's happening this weekend. I'm always nervous for it, no matter what we're ranked or what they're ranked. It always feels scary. I think a lot of fans know that feeling. It's like if you're uh, a Washington football team fan and you have the best team in the NFC and the Cowboys are terrible, you still feel like you're going to lose the Cowboys just because you have this history of memories that, that are very extremely negatively associated with that, that matchup. And so uh, that's how I feel. I'm looking forward to that one. Um, yeah, uh, you know, honestly, oh, with football, let's just cut to the chase. Alabama, Georgia, I'm terrified of it as a Georgia fan because we've seen it a thousand times how that goes. But objectively, as a football fan, those are two football teams that look like, how would you beat this team? How, like, how is anybody going to beat them? How would you stop them? How would you gain a yard against them? They're going to play okay, each other I'm, at some I'm, point. Doug, I'm going I'm to cut you off here just because as someone that moved to SEC country relatively late in life, the SEC fans will talk about the SEC championship game and the playoff ramifications. There's a lot of ramp up to that. So I will let you, I will let you go whole hog on that issue as we get close as, <laughs> as this starts to become. Because look, I, for those folks that are not in SEC country, these folks love to sort of war game out all this stuff relentlessly. And it's kind of, it's kind of cool to watch them talk about it. It's also cool to watch the passion with which they talk about that. So with that, let's, let's wrap this one up as always more content at fandomanalytics.com. Um, thanks for listening.